Open up that crystal Pepsi and get comfortable. This is Dope Nostalgia. This is Dope Nostalgia, and I'm your host, Naomi. And we have a special episode today with a very wonderful Irish singer-songwriter by the name of Pierce Turner. Now, Pierce is very popular over in Ireland, so we wanted to make sure that we let you guys know about him here in North America. And what better place to do that? His career spans at least three decades now. So I want to introduce you to Pierce. First, here's a little bit of information on Pierce Turner. Wikipedia Moments. Please bear in mind that Wikipedia is not to be taken as actual 100% fact. Any donkey could edit it at any time. If I'm reading you the artist's bio, that stuff is the real truth. Pierce Turner, born in 1956, is an Irish singer-songwriter. After forming a duo with Larry Kirwan, he went solo in the mid-1980s and has since released several albums. Turner grew up in the port town of Wexford, where his mother ran a record shop and led her own band. A classically trained musician, by the age of seven, he was a member of a traditional Irish tin whistle group, and at eight, he was playing in a brass and reed orchestra. He also sang in his local church choir, and the influence of him and plain chant singing has been evident throughout his later career. His first professional job was as a musician with the pop show band The Arrows, he later moved to New York City and formed the Major Thinkers with fellow Wexfordian Larry Kirwan, who is now the frontman of Black 47, and recorded several albums, also performing as Turner and Kirwan. Turner and Kirwan released two albums, Bootleg and Absolutely and Completely. The latter issued on the Cosmos label as well as a single, Neck and Neck, When Starlings Fly, Recorded at Electric Ladies Studios in New York and issued on the Audio Fidelity subsidiary label, Thimble, in 1973. In 78, Pierce and companion Larry were asked to front a new version of the Ohio Express Bubblegum Band. His first solo album, It's Only a Long Way Across, came out in 1987 and was produced by American avant-garde composer Philip Glass. It was nominated for Best Debut Issued by an Independent Record Company at the New York Music Awards. He went on to make two more albums for Beggar's Banquet, The Sky and the Ground in 1989 and Now is Heaven in 1991. This album was produced by John Simon. In 1997, the Baltic imprint issued the album Angelic Language. Then in 1998, Beggar's Banquet released a Best of Pierce Turner compilation. In June 2001, the Three Minute World was released. Hot Press giving it a 12 out of 12 rating, while Tony Clayton Leah of the Irish Times described Pierce as one of the most important Irish artists in the last 20 years. Meanwhile, Turner embarked on what he called his parlor tour, performing in over 70 private houses in Ireland, accompanied by London-based Wicklow filmmaker Colin Murnane who was making the documentary, The Song for the Year. Other songs by Turner were featured in the film Snakes and Ladders and the HBO TV show The Wire, his version of Dirty Old Town. Christy Moore recorded Turner's songs Wicklow Hills and Musha God Help Her. Moore's 2004 box set includes the track I Love the Way Pierce Turner Sings. 
In 2005, Wicklow Hills was voted among the top 25 Irish songs of all time by Today FM in a nationwide poll. His album, The Boy To Be With, was released in 2006 and includes Tuner's tribute to the late Irish bluesman Rory Gallagher. Turner commented on his lack of commercial success in 1993 by saying, I find that the American people really like what I do when I'm put in front of an audience of normal people. But when the recording industry gets my records, they tend to think the public won't understand or won't care about it. Maybe it's not happy enough or something. There's no use complaining about it. I'm choosing to go around that and go directly to the people. In late 2011, work commenced on a new collection, Songs for a Very Small Orchestra, recorded in Ireland and released in 2012. Turner described the sound of the record as Baroque pop. The song Yogi with a Broken Heart contains a synthesizer accompaniment from Philip Glass, with whom Turner, Turner had performed the song at Carnegie Hall in 2011. What a great privilege to speak to him from New York City. Welcome, Pierce Turner, to the show. Awesome. Well, welcome. Uh, Dope Nostalgia is a podcast where we talk about things that happened in the 90s as well as what's happening in the careers of artists today. Um, so, Pierce, um, very popular in Ireland. Um, I'm out of Canada. So, it'll be oh, nice. Yeah. Where, are, where are you? Where are you? Edmonton. So, we're on the west, out on the west, like, ah. Not too far from Vancouver, 12 hour drive, which is, you know, in Canada is not a long drive. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I love Vancouver. It's a bit yeah. far away. Yeah. It's, it, uh, when I was touring, that was one of the very few places that made an impression on me. Because, you know, when you're going 12, 24 hours in a place, yeah, it's hard to be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. That's just like my cat. When I when I do streams, he he does worse than that. He he usually shakes the camera. <laughs> yeah. No. She she's uh really wanting to be on on the camera today. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. No. Uh, touring Canada is no easy feat. That's for sure. If you're doing it, uh, especially if you're doing the bus tours, man. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. They know what to do. They, they know exactly what's important. Mm -hmm. That microphone is the most important thing that she sh shouldn't touch. So she shouldn't touch it. <laughs> That's why she's right there, yes. What made you decide early in your life that you were going to be a musician? Um, it, uh, let me see. All right. So, well, I suppose... Uh, I was musical from a very early age because my mother was a musician. She had a band mm. and uh, um, she wrote songs. So I was musical for a very early age, but I, I, like a normal boy, I wasn't that, you know, I, I just sang as a boy soprano and I did it when I was asked to do it and everything like that. But um, I think my first experience that made me want to be a musician was when I was about 12, I sang silent night in the tops of the town in my, my hometown oh, wow. with, a, with, a, with like a 50 piece choir behind me and um it, the response just and, and the feeling uh, was 
very impactive. Um, and then uh, because, you know, then I started writing music. I started writing things when I was about 30. I think, yeah, you know, it's, it, the decision to become a musician was just based on my love for music, you know. I just loved it so much. And um, it wasn't a rational decision. It certainly wasn't a business decision of any kind. Who were your musical heroes growing up? Oh, Jesus, man. That's a, that's a long, long uh, question. Uh, um, I, I suppose, I, uh, you know, my parents had a record shop, so I listened to a lot of music when I was growing up, a lot, a lot of different kinds of music. Uh, so even though I was in Ireland, I was listening to people like Velvet Underground, uh, and and they weren't even that popular in America, <laughs> you know. Uh, oh, and, yeah. and then I was listening to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, obviously, and the Beach Boys and all that stuff. And um, then you know that move. After that, I moved on to uh, uh, God. Let me see, like The Cure, Roxy Music, all of that stuff. Um, Leonard Cohen I liked when I was young. Uh, I had a pretty wide range of stuff that I like now, Naomi. It's, it's, yeah. it's a very eclectic taste, mm-hmm. to say the least. And, um, you know, I, you know um, it, it's a long list. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. And uh... I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think so, yeah. It's not a great thing in the world of music we have now in that you're supposed to really nail down exactly what you are to, you know, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, and that's what's, when someone asks me, what does my music sound like? It's, very, that's a very hard question to answer because I think it represents all those crazy things, you know, you know all that yeah. stuff. Johnny Mitchell, you know, I don't know, I could go on forever, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. And like with the North American audience, um, I want to let them know a little bit more about uh, your beginnings too. Um, your start was with a gentleman by the name of Larry Kerwin. Larry Kerwin, yeah. Yeah. How did that how did that come about? Well, we were both from a little town and um Larry was a uh, uh, involved. Larry was in a study in accountancy um, and writing songs. Uh, I became a professional musician when I was like 17. Played, I went to Germany and played in a soul band there and stuff like that. Uh, as an organ player, really, a keyboard player and a piano player. And um, uh, we lived in Dublin together. We shared a, a bed sitter in Dublin and um, uh, wrote songs together for other people. Uh, and then came to America together. So uh, f- we had a duo for about seven years, and then we formed a, a band, a kind of a new wave band, I suppose, called the Major Thinkers. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I've known Larry, you know, a very long time, you know, since I was 14. Wow. And then... You had an album come out in 91. Your album now is Heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. How do you feel about that album now, looking back at it? What would be some of your favorite tracks on it? Well, uh, 
it's it's very interesting because you know it, it was very well received by the critics and at the time I found it to be quite a painful album to do because mm. um it's kind of a breakup album I broke it up with my girlfriend and um you know it's you know out of the shit grows the flowers you know it's the pain mm. uh, you know the pain produced some very very intense songs that I really uh, still perform uh a song called Thunderstorm, which is the first song on the album. And it has wonderful string arrangements by uh, John Simon. Uh, mm. and, uh, and and then uh, there's a song on there called All Messed Up that, um, that uh, is, has got great longevity. Uh, uh, it's kind of song that was very painful to mm. write, actually. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think it stands up. It's, it's like uh, John Simon wrote the most wonderful string arrangements. And um, it's weird for me because, I was, as I said, we had a record shop. And when I was a kid, I was listening to John Simon productions in our record shop. You know, like he produced all the band albums. You know, and he was, on, he was really like considered to be the seventh member of the band. Mm-hmm. You know, sixth member. How many people were in the band? Five or six, I can't remember. Easily um, five, probably more. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so he 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 produced all the band albums and played on them and uh, stuff like that. So, and then he also produced the Leonard Cohen debut album with all the great songs like "So Long, Marianne," Marianne, and uh, and all those great songs. Um, so I was a big fan of his when mm. I was a teenager, and so to work with him in the studio was kind of mind-blowing that I an experience to go that full circle you know it's like and likewise coming to America you know I met so many people that were people I idolized in my little hometown you know it's that I never thought I'd ever reach you know never mind talk to and hang out with you know so uh you know it's a strange strange idea that'd be thrilling though I mean, as it is, just traveling to a new continent to to work on your new music would be just as exciting. But to have all those people that you you know you've you've thought about over the years or wanted to meet, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and in a way, it sort of bursts a bubble too. It's like you know, because it's also magical when you don't know how it's done. Yeah, and then, you know, when you see how it's done. You sort of think like, you know, it's not that far away from how I do it myself, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not like some kind of, it's not some absolutely mind-blowing thing, you know. It's not like, you know, it's not a magic button or anything like that. It's just work, work, work until you get it right, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, impatience and difficulties and arguments and, you know, it's all... It's all all the same stuff. <laughs> true, true. That's yeah. So I thought, like, in my mind, I thought it would be kind of like what you know, the way I envisioned the Beatles working with George Martin. I thought, like, you know, that you know that he sorted them out. You know, they'd write a song and that he would sort them out. You know, all right, mm-hmm. put in an F diminished in there and you know, like, and and all that stuff. But now I know that's not really how it's done at all. 
mm-hmm. you have to do it all really and then somebody else just makes sure that it gets on tape that's about it really you know maybe just more hands are involved too more ears are involved sometimes yeah yeah exactly yeah and you need more people you need more ears you, you can make something wonderful on your own you can there's no question about it but it won't be the same thing as you will make with other people mm-hmm. it's there will be elements to it a depth of field to it that you're not going to get when you're on your own mm-hmm. and that's very clear for me you know i hear like you like an artist like ed sheeran for instance and i know he's got other people he's working with but i do sometimes think i just feel that i'm just listening to one person yes you know and um and, and and because what happens like like this because i've made albums like the way ed sheeran makes albums and um, for instance on this album i had a band a, a band of really high quality musicians and um mm. when i listen to that i hear a depth of field that i wouldn't have gotten if i was on my own you know you know and i let them yeah. i wanted them to to have a strong stay you know so i, I, I encouraged it um so it's a different thing yeah no exactly it adds so much and the perfect phrase is depth of field i'm glad you used that it's true yeah yeah okay Angelic and an angelic language, 1997. Yeah, and that, that album. Well, that that album was actually uh, really a, an album I made on my own. Mm. I made it here in my apartment, basically, um, mm. and it was it, it was almost like de- demonstrations, demos, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I because I had done so many albums that were produced with. You know, at that point, I wanted to just do that. I didn't want to do with anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, uh, I, I knew there was a certain magic in that, too. As yeah. I said, a different thing, you know. Um, so, uh, but ultimately, I have to say, when I look back at it, I realized that, um, in fact, I re-recorded one of the songs from there on this new album, a song mm. called Stevens Preparing to Leave. I re-recorded it because I feel that the recording I did then 
was, uh, you know, it didn't do the song complete justice for what could happen to it. It was the early stages of the song, you know, um, mm. which definitely is a special thing. It's, a, it's another thing. But, mm. but when you bring in, when you, when you flesh it out and you bring other musicians in, some songs are, should, should experience that, should have that. And, uh, and, that could, and Stephen's preparing to leave, stood the test of time and still felt like it was, you know, contemporary because um, it wasn't, it was unusual when I wrote it. And um, uh, then re-recording it uh, added other dimensions, interesting dimensions to it. And I think it's, I like the way it sounds like with the bands too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's cool that like both albums are so in, in the, in what went into making them just very different that way. You know, it's like, Two, two different spectrums of your uh, your creativity. Yeah, very much so, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you know, I think that, you know, when you when you make a record with with a band, with a guitar player, prominent guitar player like Jerry Leonard, um, you're going to also draw in different people. Mm -hmm. There are people who can only hear guitars. They only, the electric guitar is the only instrument that speaks to them. Yeah. There's, there are people who really, they really can't. If you give an album without an electric guitar on, they just don't know what to make of it. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, so like, uh, it's like, you know, opening the door to those people. Mm. And... Um, Hopefully they will like it. And the Irish Times listed you as one of the most important art Irish artists of the last 20 years. How does it feel to get a moniker such as that? Well, you know, when I, I, I never really believed it. You know, I read stuff like that. I go, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's quite, a, quite an accolade. I like that. Yeah. You kind of feel like, you know, are they mistaking me for somebody else? Or did, did, did this guy just wake up on a really good day after, you know, after just, you know, getting, uh, drinking 10 cups of coffee or something and feels yeah. great. And I got the good, <laughs> you know, it just, it just doesn't feel real when I see stuff like that. You know, it's like, uh, mm. you know, it's a bit like I said, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a, with a record in a record shop, uh, sort of idolizing these, uh, you know, artists and you know people. That, so if any of it applies to me, it always seems uh, surreal. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's a it's a good feeling, I'm sure. But yeah, it can be. I can understand, especially like, wow, that's that's a huge thing to say. So <laughs> it's it's nice yeah. to hear. It is nice yeah, uh, and of course, you know, it has its disadvantages too, Naomi. That's stuff. Yeah. Because there are people who will go, he is not. <laughs> oh, it puts this pressure on you that you didn't have before, and you're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that they're important uh, because, you know, opinionated people are not that important. You know, it's like, uh, you know, yeah. people with closed minds and are who are looking for to criticize all the time are, are not as important as people who are open-minded. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. 
So we have to remember that every time we make a record, every time we do anything. It came across me, this, this, this philosophy really hit me a very long time ago when I was going, I, I realized that I was trying to prepare myself to go, well, once I got beyond the point where I was just, uh, when I became a professional musician, at one point it was just get on stage and see if I can pull it off. You know, if I can, can I play this? Can I sing this? You know, once you get over that point that you're well mm -hmm. able to do that, that the next thing you come across is of will they like me or will they not like me and you start thinking about the audience and looking out at them and seeing people making funny faces and wondering if they hate it you know uh, and all that stuff starts going on and then one day it, it dawned on me that no that's not really the case because nobody is go going to pay to come to see you play to dislike you it, mm -hmm. you know, they will want to like you because it's very painful for them to not like you, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what? And then you know that changed my whole attitude. And remarkably, that statement uh, is remarkable as, as uh, logical as that sounds. Uh, I had a conversation with Elton John's manager once because my wife used to be his assistant, personal assistant, mm -hmm. and. Um, and uh, I asked him the same question. What do you think audiences are thinking when you go out on stage? And he said, I think they're saying, prove me that you prove to me that you're good. <laughs> so I, he, he, he uh, you know, I said, no, I don't think that's what they're thinking. I think that they're thinking, please be good. Mm -hmm. That's the Please be thing. good. Please be good because I've invested in you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because I'm here, you know, even if my friend brought me, you know, or somebody brought me or whatever, I'm here now, you know, yeah. you know, please make this a pleasant experience, make this a great experience. Um, I think it's because he was, he's not a performer. He didn't understand that. And mm -hmm. there's a man who's very successful. who didn't know that. I think. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, his take would be on it when he's not the person on stage. Right. So I get that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. After these messages, we'll be right back. Yeah. Don't nostalgia listeners, I love you and I thank you so much for being a part of this show and its success over the last two years. We have what's called Patreon for those who want to support the show financially. For as little as $1 a month, you can become a subscriber and get bonus content, early podcast release, all kinds of cool behind-the-scenes stuff, and more. There's different tiers of membership starting at only $1 a month. And we even have some special merch for you guys who are in it for the long run. So, please, join our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com forward slash dope nostalgia. Let's watch something as a casual movie review podcast starring Anthony and Jack. Everyone loves hearing industry professionals talking about their craft. That's not us. We're just a couple of movie lovers. A couple of nerds. Talking about movies. So come join us on Let's Watch Something. With Anthony and Jack. Anchor.fm slash LWS. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's watch something. 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 
I may take your order, please. Big Mac, McDLT, a quarter pounder with cheese, filet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, McChicken, and McNuggets, tasty golden french fries, regular and larger size of salad, chef for garden or chicken salad, oriental, and for breakfast, egg, big buffin, hotter cakes with sausage, maybe omelette, big buffins, all three kinds of Danish hash two and four, dessert, hot apple pies, and Sundays, three varieties, the saucer cone, three kinds of shakes and chocolates, each of cookies, and a drink of Coca-Cola, diet coke, and orange drink, a sprite and coffee, and a chocolate, also apple, orange, and grapefruit juice, I love McDonald's, good and great taste, and I get this all at one place. Now let me get this straight, you want a Big Mac, McDLT, a quarter pound? got the new album coming out february correct yeah terrible good yeah tell me about the process were you doing a lot of recording during this uh pandemic and writing yeah we recorded it during the pandemic mm-hmm. yeah we recorded it last beginning of last year um um it, it, it's it, it's like well i I came back to New York from Ireland in January last year, expecting absolutely nothing to do. I had nothing to do. I had no gigs. I had nothing. And I was thinking, what am I going to do in New York? You know, like, you know, why am I even going there? I don't know. And um, um, when I got here, I got a call from Dick Connett at Story Sound Records. And he, he said, I want to speak to you um, about something. And... I have a, a record label and maybe I can give some help to you. So I went up to him thinking like, you know, well, uh, yeah, whatever. I mean, I just went really because I really liked Dick. Uh, I, I known him and I always liked him. But I thought, you know, who a record label, we all have record labels. <laughs> what's, what's a, but it turns out that Dick really has a real record label, real uh, he, he had, with money and power and really and love. For, he's, he's really a huge music lover. So... Uh, uh, he offered me the budget to make an album, and um, uh, I said, "Well, it so happens that I've just reconnected with Jerry Leonard, who played guitar with David Bowie and Rufus Wainwright and Suzanne Vega, and uh, uh, he's from Ireland." And uh, I asked him, "Would he make an album with me?" And he said he would. So now, you know, uh, uh, we could do that. And Dick was a huge fan of Jerry's. It turned out so. We, uh, that, that was pretty surprising because uh, I didn't think I would get the budget together to make an album with Jerry Reedy because I knew he'd want a real, a bigger budget than I normally would have. Then uh, Jerry said, let's get Tony Shanahan on bass and Yuval Lyon on drums. And Tony plays with Patti Smith and Beck and Yuval mm-hmm. Lyon plays with David Byrne, you know, so it's a pretty all-star lineup. And I thought, yeah, let's get them. That'd be great. And they 
of course, weren't busy either because of the pandemic. This is the thing is nobody was busy, you know. It's true. Yeah, the studio wasn't busy either. So this was fate of some kind. And I had all these songs written and ready to go. And um, we went into a studio in Long Island City and started recording. Mm. Uh, um, it's pretty amazing because when I first met Jerry, it was in the late 90s or mid 90s, around 90s sometime. He mixed my sound and I didn't even know he was a guitar player. And mm-hmm. um, the next time I did see him, he was playing with David Bowie. <laughs> I was like, what? This, I didn't even know he played the guitar. Oh, um, wow. So uh, it was uh, it, uh, fortuitous, really. Um, so there, then again, here we go. Like I'm, you know, I, I loved David Bowie when I was in Ireland as well. I was a big David Bowie fan as well. And now I'm working with David Bowie's guitar player. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's all, it's, it's all, it's like a big circle, really. Well, that's really fascinating how that all came together at the time it did. You know, yeah. with everything going on. And so, what what do we have to look forward to when this album comes out? Well, I'm launching it on in Joe's Pub in Manhattan. I don't know if you know where jo- Joe's Pub is. A really great club. It's I've never. No, it's I haven't heard of it. Yeah, and it's one of the top five clubs in the American part of the Rolling Stone. Yeah, uh, it is wonderful. Yeah, and it's it's uh, part of the public theater. Um, and we're we're launching the album there on March seventeenth, mm. uh, which is just a coincidence because I'm Irish. Um, and uh, and I just got the album yesterday. I have it here in my hand. Nice. Yeah, it's got it, and it's great because you see this booklet that's inside of it. Mm-hmm. I could never afford to make these when I was making my own albums. You know, it's a twenty-four page booklet inside ah. here with all the all the lyrics and meanderings about how, what made each song and everything like that. It's an absolutely beautiful thing, and uh, yeah. That's Story Sound, you know, I guess I got to thank Story Sound for that. Uh, so, uh, um, th- then, you know, uh, we're going to stream that show from Joe's Pub and record it on a four camera, three camera shoot, I should say, um, uh, high class, or high quality audio. And, uh, um, we're going to be putting that up on the internet so we can, everyone can look at it. That's Good. the first thing to do. Good. So by the time this time this drops, we'll be able to put out the links there about where people can follow you and then they can see the stream, which will be nice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. You sound, you sound, you sound like I, you live in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, but you see, this proves that we're not faking this, Naomi. Yeah. This it's is the true. real yeah, there's Manhattan outside there screaming and shouting at me. <laughs> What's uh, been what, one of your most memorable performances that you hit, that, that you recall throughout your career? Well, I, I'm playing at Glastonbury, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in front of 60,000 people. It was pretty mem- mem- memorable. Um, and, and I went on at prime time because of a weird thing that happened 
Suzanne Vega was headlining that night, and um, she she brought me on at as a special guest at seven o'clock. I was supposed to be on at noon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a pretty amazing experience, uh, I have to say. Probably that thing. You know, I did Carnegie Hall with Philip Glass and Patti Smith as well, which was pretty memorable. Yeah. Very, very memorable. Philip played keyboard with me and I played piano. And um, that was a great thing. Um, I suppose that's it, the most memorable things. Those would be great, great memories. Yeah. <laughs> um, when we talk about Ireland, um, how long have you been living in America now? 30 years. Quite a, long, quite a while, hey? Yeah, but I've been here the whole time. That's when I came here first. Mm-hmm. When you think about um, Ireland, what are some of your favorite things about the country? And if you were to tell a tourist going to visit there, what would you recommend to them? Don't drink alcohol, first of all. No. <laughs> a lot of them probably come there to do just that. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I, I'm joking, of course. Uh, I think the first thing that really strong advice I'd give to anybody going to Ireland is don't follow the tourist guides, you know, if, uh, because they are so warped. Uh, 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 all the all the tourism for Ireland is geared towards emigration. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people emigrated from Ireland uh, during the potato famine in 1847. They came, they left during that because they had to. Uh, Ireland had a population of eight million people in 1847, and now has a population of five million people. Mm-hmm. We lost like 3 million people because of the potato famine. And they went to Canada, Australia, America. They came from the west coast of Ireland. Mayo, Galway, Cork, these places. Because it was just convenient. I mean, it sounds nuts, but crossing the country was so difficult when you were starving and, you know, you, you even if it's a small country, you can't walk 400 miles to go on a ferry to England, you know. Yeah. So they went to America and they went to Canada and they went to Australia. They left from the, and they went, came from the West Coast. So all the tourism is based on the West Coast of Ireland. People think, oh, the West of Ireland is gorgeous and everything else. They think it's just barren or something. I don't know what they think. But mm-hmm. in actual fact, this Southeast, where I come from is where the Irish go on holidays mm. in Wexford and, uh, and around there, Wicklow. Um, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's really important to explore those places too. Don't mm-hmm. just go to the West Coast. The West Coast is great also, and that, don't get me wrong, but it's just that, uh, you know, it, Ireland doesn't finish on the West Coast. You know, it's, if you go... If you go to Dublin, for instance, you know, you're going to experience a very different thing because Dublin is, you know, is the capital of Ireland and it's very cosmopolitan and there's a very different energy. And mm. you should experience it. You should go there and you should go down the coast on that coast, stay on that coast and experience 
experience the train ride down along from Dublin to Wexford. It hugs the coastline all the way, and it feels like it's going to drop into the to the sea all the time. Oh wow! It's wonderful. Yeah. That's a place I definitely haven't visited yet, and it should be right up there. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. Where have you been to Ireland at all? No. I haven't left North America. Uh, have you not? No. Have you got a passport? Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean. I've been waiting a couple of years to use it, but I'm ready. I'm ready for some travel again. Hopefully I think soon. So yes, Naomi, get out of there. <laughs> so, um, just a few more questions to wrap things up. Uh, kind of '90s-centric questions for you. When the internet became a thing in the '90s, did you use it at all to promote your music? Were you involved in it in the '90s when it was new? Yeah, the minute it came out, I jumped all over it. Yeah? Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what the, the thing, I mean, you know, yes, I hate Spotify and all these people who have just like taken all away our, our royalties, you know, and pretend that they're doing it to, you know, further the cause or whatever. But that's the mm -hmm. fact you know, there are too many people feeding off music. But, uh, if the internet had been around when I was, it, it was it, a lot of the stuff that was happening for me, like in the nineties, if the internet had been around, or, uh, I would have been like, uh, it would have made my life a lot easier. You know, mm. I wouldn't have made as much money probably, but it would have been, you know, I had a big audience, a fairly big audience. That audience would have been, could, could have taken off to a much bigger audience very quickly with the help of the internet. You know, you wouldn't be, it wasn't localized. You know, it's like a, a, if you have an audience, I, I had a big audience in Manhattan, but if you had a big audience in Manhattan, that would have been, uh, that would have led me to a national situation quicker than getting in a van and driving around America. Yeah. You know, Ed Sheeran hasn't driven around the world in a van like you two did. Mm -hmm. So yes, I, I took advantage. So when I saw this opportunity to reach people uh, through the internet, I, I jumped on it. That's good. Okay, so I, I found that when I talked to people about the internet and when it came out, a lot of them avoided it. Like they thought that it was some kind of fad or trend that you know was not going to be productive for them. And now here we are and we can't live without it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that suspicion is a very bad thing for an artist to have. You know, mm. I can't tell you many artists that I know that never got signed to a record company because they were suspicious all the time. Mm -hmm. They always thought they were getting ripped off. You know, if, if the record company said they wanted some of their publishing, they thought that, well, I'm not giving you my publishing. <laughs> I never read. had that. Just, I, have I, to well, read. Just read the contract through and you'll see. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. yeah, my my approach is yes, you can have everything. Just do something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, help me. You know, and um, yeah, or you could be uh, missing out on a on everything if you you know if you if you just got to really read it. 
Yeah, or are you, you know, like I've seen, like, take an artist like Paul Simon. He was very savvy, Paul Simon was. I remember reading this years ago, and that he wouldn't give his publishing to anybody and everything like that. Well, obviously, Paul Simon did very well for himself. He, he's mm. usually successful, obviously. But now Paul Simon is worth, what, 600 million or something like that. And if he had gone and given some of his publishing away would it have been such a big disaster if he if he had 200 million now instead of 600 million you know it's no exactly <laughs> no it does you know it's 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 not worth it you know let other people take let other people get involved and let them have some of it you know it's a business for yeah all things, yeah. All things considered I think the worst thing you do is work on your own all the time. That'll be really boring and really um, you know, unhealthy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And surrounding yourself with good, honest people is probably very important as well, because there's always going to be some shady characters. But if you can find the right people. Yeah. 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 There are people who will waste your time, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have <laughs> you a guy who uh, was very, he was a fan of this band and he, he was very annoyed about something. And I said, well, what's wrong exactly? I thought you really liked them, you know? He said, yeah, but you know, they never ever gave me anything back for my investment. And I said, so like, what did you, know, what did you invest? He said, well, I, I put $150 into them, you know, and uh, I never got anything back. <laughs> wow, really broke the bank. <laughs> and I thought, you, know, well, you know, he didn't have any money, in fairness to him. But like, what did yeah. he think? And why would they take the $150? You know, it's like, you know, what? <laughs> so you get that kind of silliness. You don't want to be involved with that kind of silliness. True. That's petty. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, to, to wrap things up, of course, uh, when you think back to that decade of the 90s, what kind of food, clothing, item, toy, something that would make you nostalgic for that, for that era? Well, for the 90s? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I, I asked everybody this question. Let me wrap I, it up. Well, I would say I would have to pick music of, of you know, and that, like, uh, uh, I was a uh, you know some of the music that was around then, the B-52s and uh, uh, Prince and nice. uh, uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm nostalgic for that more than anything, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I, you know, and then you know earlier seeing people like Talking Heads and Brian Ferry on the same bill, you know that kind of thing was ah. just mind blowing for me. And um, so, you know, the, it, it's, yeah, I'd have to say it was the, it's the music, mm -hmm. the, the nostalgic hearing that music. And same so, for me, that's why I do this show. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, the clothes, you know, are so weird. I mean, they just keep <laughs> going around. It just keeps going around in circles, you know. Well, you know, it's, it's just basically the same clothes getting recycled all the time. You know, a lot of those looks have come back already. So yeah, now now, now I think 
Bell bottoms are back in, uh, somebody told me. Bell really? Bottom. Yeah. Really, again? Yeah, again. This is the other thing is it's again. <laughs> I like them better than the skinny jeans. I do too. You know, the skinny They're jeans annoy me. I can't stand them. <laughs> I, don't like, I, don't, I don't like them either. And they say now that if you wear skinny jeans, it gives everything away from what you're thinking. You know, you know, what era you're into or whatever. Skinny Mr. jeans. Skinny jeans date you more than anything, apparently. All right. Well, if they're on the way out, I'm happy with that. <laughs> Plus, they're a real pain in the arse to get off. You know, it's yeah. why, you know, it's like, you know, you, torture. You just, yeah. And getting them on, at least you can sort of lie on the bed and pull them on or something like that. But getting yeah. them off, really, absolutely horrible. <laughs> No, I agree with you. To get let them go, uh, easily let them go, no problem. Yeah. Well, Pierce, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and I hope you had fun talking about everything with me. And yeah, it was great. Great talking to you too, Naomi. So, all right, then get your passport and head off to Ireland. Get going. Yes. Right. Okay. Get going, to Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> I've been labeled a singer-songwriter, right? and I don't actually want to be one. I've never wanted to be one. But this record that we've made, I think it really sounds like a band, and I'm really excited about that. Like my dad walking up that hill to the hospital. One of the reasons it really sounds like a band is because you have a major part in it, and you're a guitar player. Like my walking out that and then you picked the rhythm section, tremendous rhythm section. Like Tony Shannon came and played bass for us. Right? Yeah, Tony Smith's bass player. Yeah, plays with Patty Smith. You know, Yuval Lyon, who got on drums, plays with David Byrne. Had that individual thing that bands have, and it's it's a cast of characters, and it makes that particular sound. Like Unless you follow us on Twitter at Nostalgia Dope, Instagram at Dope underscore Nostalgia. Visit our website at www.dopenostalgia.com or pick up the phone and call us at 780-851-8785 and cut it out. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work.